Dear friends, President of Quinnipiac University and distinguished guests, it is a very great honour for me to be here with you this evening to perform the official opening of Coming Home, Art and the Great Hunger. I've just been to see the exhibition, and it is an exhibition that reflects in a powerfully visual way not only the centrality of the famine of 1845 to 1852 as a defining event in the making of modern Ireland, but as one of the defining events in 19th century global history. It is of immense importance, too, that those scholars studying the evolution of economic ideology and theory in the 19th century, and there aren't enough of them, uh, and how, if you like, assumptions of ideology and masking as theory can affect policy, I think it will be of value to them. It will be, of course, a source of recalling a tool of something that is very important, and I'm so pleased as President of Ireland about this, of recalling the nature and the texture of the bond that exists between the citizens of this country and those millions of American citizens who today are proud of their Irish descent and who are interested in teasing out uh, the complexity of the roots of those original arrivals in the United States. So may I be then begin by thanking Malutron Hedden and all those who have contributed in any way to bringing this remarkable collection of historical and contemporary art and literature to our shores. The exhibition wouldn't be here today, I think, without the tireless commitment of Dr. John Lahey, the president of Quinnipiac University, a university that has emerged as a leading centre of understanding of Ungarta Moor uh, through the establishment of the Great Hunger Museum and, of course, most recently, the Great Hunger Institute under the leadership of Professor Christine Keneally. I've long been an admirer of Christine Keneally's work and particularly her work in relation to particularly researching the position of women in the experience of the famine. And the quality of both the planned programme of events that has been announced and the selection of the art on display is a testament to the dedication and skill of the staff of the museum, who the pleasure I've just had of meeting, but particularly Professor Neva Sullivan, Claire Bozarn and Ryan Mahoney. May I take this opportunity then of congratulating and commending them all, but I'd also like to acknowledge the generosity of all those who contributed their financial resources to facilitate what is a considerable artistic, cultural and educational undertaking. I was honoured to be asked to contribute the preface to the catalogue of Coming Home, edited by Professor Sullivan. In that preface, I echoed some words I had spoken at the National Famine Commemoration at Glasnevin Cemetery when I stood amidst the largest burial ground for the victims of the Great Hunger. And there I made reference 
to a great silence generated by the famine. Well, as new scholarship emerges, all of us must be open to revising our accounts, and I'm certainly open to revising mine, so I would see difficulties now in using the term the great silence. After all, new scholarship has brought to our attention valuable new local accounts, and I've also since had an opportunity of looking at very significant European travellers' accounts uh, of the famine. Well, yes, while I think it's only fair to say that there was a silence observed consciously as a policy by the official organs of the state in both the British and the Irish cases, thinking about that, such an official silence is very different to the numbed unwillingness or even incapacity of communities throughout this state to deal with what was for them a painful past. Some post-famine communities, we must remember, included and include the survivors of the famine, and indeed some who may have profited from it, as a totally new agricultural economy and society was introduced. <coughs> and certainly I don't intend to delay this evening, but I've written elsewhere about the forced famine adjustment which created <coughs> and brought into existence new forms of native predator. And you have, of course, towards the end of the 19th century, the conflict between graziers and shopkeepers and others, and a much disputed construction of what was debt and bondage, which I think uh, I, I'm delighted that Cormac O'Groth is here. I remember him supporting some of my suggestions in this regard. <laughs> I think. But those in the new adjusted holdings, after all, lived side by side with the outlines of what had been houses, homes, and famine villages, in what Brendan Rosswithner, adopting a usage first implied by Primo Levi, has termed a grey zone, a space in which the distinction between those who committed moral outrages and those subject to them is blurred for the purposes of survival in the present. Yet inescapably, both live in the shadow of an event national in its impact, but very unequally so. After all, the most vulnerable of our Irish of Ungartamore lacked the means to flee and to die. And when the very first speeches make reference to what I've said about that, where it was very important to make a revision, is to assume the obvious statement first in trying to understand about those who were involved in the famine. There is, of course, an immense class division to it. But it isn't simple. There are many gradations, and those with least simply died, and those above that level are the people who, in fact, peopled the immigration statistics. I think, without a doubt, it was the most vulnerable who lacked the means to flee and die. Those who had a dung heap, those who had tools to sell, those who had the harness, or an animal itself, had the capacity to flee, and they would become part of the human tide of great famine immigration to the United States. And for a time, it was a silence in which some Irish historians, particularly those who prided themselves on what they felt was an austere and demanding commitment to a history that they felt must be liberated from what was considered the nationalist fervour of a John Mitchell or a Michael Davis. And you could say they were accused of participating as part of an affected neutrality as to the historiography of the period. Thirty years ago, the late Brendan Bradshaw suggested 
that the great hunger, after all, confronted <coughs> Irish historians with the catastrophic dimensions of the Irish past, a past that could not be contained within the verities of a value-free history. Those words were written at a time when the historiography of the Great Famine was drawn from what were relatively thin furrows, <coughs> confined to the economic and social history, which itself might reflect a relative failure to synthesise an adequate, truly interdisciplinary history. By way of contrast, the American economist Joel Macher, in his substantive 1983 study of the structure of Irish agricultural production, informed by the application of econometric methods to historical statistics, why Ireland starved, wrote that Irish history is demographic history. It would be wrong, too, to think that we were without accounts, and many, many of them before the famine. The published accounts from travellers all emphasised the poverty of the people. And these were accounts such as that, for example, of the Hungarian baron, uh, Josef Etvish, in his book, Poverty in Ireland in 1837, really gave us important figures. <coughs> 10,000 families owning 10,000 estates, the land of Ireland, Lord Lucan, 60,000 acres, and 45% of the tenants living precariously on holdings of under four acres. It's important that these elementary facts, in fact, don't get revised for the purposes of making this event palatable to anyone. I very much welcome, therefore, all the more inclusive work which is now available to us. I've just been reading, it's about to come out, the new Cambridge history of Ireland. And the new Cambridge history of Ireland introduces a whole new generation of scholars whose work, empirical work, reflective work, offers new evidence. And it offers some opinions too, which will be just as controversial as what preceded them, uh, some more adequately based than others. But I assure you, when it comes out in two weeks' time, it will lead to a most vigorous debate. And given its economic, its impact, economic and social historian study, the 19th and 20th century, they often have had little choice but to place the famine at the centre of their work. K.H. Connell's The Population of Ireland, 1700-1845, published in 1950, was very much a prehistory of the famine. Raymond Crotty is very valuable and I believe insufficiently appreciated, perhaps even neglected work. Uh, It was a study of Irish agriculture, published in 1966, and it was prefaced by a long historical exegesis in which the famine was seen as an accelerant of the forces of economic and social change. And that work is important, even if you like the model seems to upset people in contemporary accounts. And then in the early 1960s, Dr. Austin Burke made a study of Phytophora infestans, that fungus which gave rise to the blight. And as a student of social history myself, in the 1960s and 70s, interested in Irish migration, and there wasn't that much coming from for scholarship, and interested particularly on post-famine adjustment, on which there was even less, and then the Irish church, I want to acknowledge all of our debt to the North American scholarships represented by the work of, among others, uh, Kirby Miller, James Donnelly, Sam Clark, and of course, all that good work on land politics and people. 
And in the work as well, and what has come to be called, rather politely, the devotional revolution uh, in Ireland. But though that work served at the basis of very fruitful discussions and engagements with, indeed, historians such as Cormac O'Groda and Garrod O'Toohig. But synthetic histories were very few. Memorably, the volume commissioned by the Dentitiac Eamon de Valera on the centenary of the famine in, in 1946 took ten years to produce, and it was nearly half as long as was promised, although one can note that uh, Thomas O'Neill's contribution to the volume has aged rather well. It was much later, when Eamon de Valera became president of Ireland, that he felt he could wholeheartedly welcome a famine history in 1962 with the publication of the Great Hunger Ireland, 1845 to 1849. The author, Cecil Woodham Smith, was given a dinner in her honour, Joris Anutron, following the award of a degree in Oris Causa to her by the National University of Ireland. It was, after all, yeah, 1962, we were coming towards the end of the first programme for economic expansion, so perhaps minuscules of courage were being recovered. <coughs> Since the sesquicentral commemoration of the Great Hunger, there has been a remarkable body of scholarship which has elucidated our understanding of the famine, not least the synthetic accounts I've referred to already produced by scholars such as Professor Keneally. This exhibition, and particularly the famine folios published by the Great Hunger Museum, represent a valuable and continuing contribution to what we might call now famine studies, which involves an excavation of a past whose substance to cite Brendan Bradshaw again is formed by disaster. What is most impressive in the exhibition, I felt, look, it was the invocation of the situation of an event whose horror was, we should never forget, tied to a time and place. We only need to consider the sketches of starving women and children drawn by James Mahoney for the Illustrated London Evening News, which, were, which are on display here today. To take one example from the famine folios, which, engage, which I think engage with the long durée of Irish and global history, Email on Voyage by Garrod O'Toohig begins an account of the shift from the Irish language to the English language, from what, may call the, what we might call the English conquest of Ireland, of the 16th century through to the disdain for the language by the hierarchy of the Catholic Church and the use of English by nationalist politicians. We might recall that it was James Connolly, not an Irish speaker himself, but a very astute historian in his own right, who incisively asked White Angle O'Connell, a native Irish speaker, address crowds of the Irish rural poor in English. And what O'Connell's decision revealed as to the long sweep of relations with our largest neighbour. In the 1840s and 1850s, death by those who had no means and emigration by those who had meagre means, or a relative's assist remittance, were concentrated on the Atlantic seaboard amongst the rural poor. These were the areas most dependent on the potato and the areas in which the greatest proportion of the people spoke Irish. Jerry Mulvey last year a young man sent me his wonderful The Truth Behind the Irish Famine. He had commissioned for that work four artists to prepare 46 illustrations, responses to a wide body of comments which he had read on the Irish famine made between 1845 and 1850. Of that western seaboard, 
con- the condition. He quoted American philanthropist Asenath Nicholson. These poor creatures are in a virtual bondage to their landlords and superiors, as is possible for mind or body to be. They cannot work unless they bid them. They cannot eat unless they feed them. And they cannot get away unless they help them. And as Professor Kevin Keeney has observed, emigration therefore contributed to the decline of the Irish language while making it more common on the streets of the United States than it had any been in that century at home. And as Garrodo Tuhig has made clear, the famine accelerated this process, and immigrants in this wave to the United States and Britain spoke a native language with, in his words, little transactional value. <coughs> I remember when I came to live in Gorum myself in 1960, hearing of the phrase, Changa on Voktanish, and Changa on Bard War, and this was, in a way, a devaluation of the language itself. But this, of course, makes a powerful and chilling cultural statement that is too often ignored as to how such a circumstance had come to be. It was the outcome of a lengthy, sustained cultural assault with the one's own language devalued. And this meant that the migrants in the west of Ireland brought into the immigration flow had most of them simply for survival reasons to have both Irish and English or be on the way to such competence. And this reminds us that the great hunger took place in what has been called the first age of globalisation. It is an occurrence at the very heart of an international trading empire that was unprecedented in its capacity to mobilise trade, finance and the material thought necessary and reflective of a natural tendency and purpose to sustain a liberal order. In Ireland, the land was a resource in such thinking, the people an impediment to adjustment to what was perceived to be an inevitable rational order. In the 19th century, Ireland itself, Irish society, was itself integrating or being integrated into this order, not solely through the act of union either, but through the increasing influence of the market economy on the organisation of rural and urban society. The widespread subsistence on potato cultivation is often cited, and indeed it was cited by some 19th century British political economists, as a symptom of backwardness a backwardness attributed again and again to a non-reformable people. Behind the laissez-faire assumptions of that century lay, of course, some old notions of cultural supremacy. Although it's important in scholarship, too, that even the greatest high priest, if you like, of laissez-faire, Professor Whateley, suggested that the poor law suggestions for Ireland wouldn't work in Ireland. He was a kind of contradicting that received doctrine, in a way, in terms of its application to Ireland. But I think, in a way, this old, these old notions of cultural supremacy, of what was perceived to be the rational order, and the backwardness of those for whom one had undertaken an obligation through political union, but whose culture you had to find as irrevocably lesser and backward. A century earlier, after all, David Hume had written... The Irish from the beginning of time have been buried in the most profound barbarianism and ignorance. And as they were never conquered, even indeed invaded by the Romans, from whom all the Western world derives its culture, they continued still in the most rude state of society and were distinguished by those vices to which human nature, 
not tamed by education, nor restrained by laws, is forever subject. And then a century after the famine, of course, Winston Churchill would write, we have always found the Irish to be a bit odd. They refused to be English. <laughs> yes, it was so easily forgotten, fortified by such ideological prejudice that the 3.3 million landless labourers in the 1840s were providing labour services in exchange for plots for potato cultivation to farmers who were themselves becoming increasingly integrated into a global economy producing high-quality wheat for export to the growing cities of Britain. Brendan Swivner has provided us with a remarkable new history and his new, remarkable new facts in his new book, The End of Outrage, Post-Famine Adjustment in Rural Ireland, and has encapsulated many of his ideas in both his contribution to the catalogue and the famine folio series. In his study of a townland in Western Gaul, he not only tells that story of integration into the market order, but of, in his words, the end of moral indignation in the face of despair and disaster, and the face of rural poor, for it is from those families that the casualties of the famine came. It vividly describes a process of marginalisation, of the consolidation of holdings on the eve of the famine, the extinguishing of commonage, all facilitated by the instruments of a new technology of the state, the Ordnance Survey. Above all, I believe it is that concept of the grey zone of the later inevitable consequences that would flow from the cohabitation of those who gained with those who barely survived, both under the shadow of the memory of those who left or who died, which can have the capacity to still haunt us today. At the dawn of the 20th century, the Irish political economy was transformed in what is a quite distinctive path to modernity. When characterised, however, not by an indigenous resource-based version of modernisation, as economists often understood that, but by a structure of production shaped by the global economy. In 1840, crops accounted for over two-thirds of net agricultural output. 68 years later, in 1908, they accounted for one-seventh the landscape was given over to beef and dairy production. To paraphrase Thomas More, it must have seemed as if cattle would eat up and swallow down the very men themselves, as the houses, huts and potato fields gave way to pasture and the reign of the grazier. The 1911 census records only 4.4 million inhabitants, a little less than half of 1841. If the Great Hunger was not the sole foundational event in the formation of the Irish diaspora, after all, over a million Irish people emigrated to North America between 1815 and 1845. There had been a mini-famine in 1815, and the rumour was widespread that the country was finished after the Act of Union. It did, however, create the largest, the more created the single largest exodus of people from this island in our history. Between 1846 and 1855, 2.1 million people left this island, more than in the previous two and a half centuries combined. 1.5 million of those fled to the United States. In what we might call the post-famine adjustment between 1856 and the signing of the treaty in 1921, over 4.5 million people left our shores, nearly three quarters arriving in the United States. 
Now it's interesting. Kevin Kinney reminds us that this exceeded the total population living on the island of Ireland at the end of the 19th century. Many of us in Ireland are the descendants of those who remained. We are descendants of remnants. Between 1862 and 1870, five of the seven in my grandfather's family in County Clare emigrated to Australia. The state was for a long time reticent and uncertain as to its approach in interpreting and laterally commemorating the famine. Until the 1970s, the school curriculum privileged John Mitchell, could be fitted with nationalist emphasis more easily, who identified the locus of responsibility for the famine in the conscious intention and policy of the British state, particularly in the policies of the Treasury. And this prevailed rather than the work of James Fintan Lawler, whose analysis of the unequal distribution of land and soil remains the most searing contemporary description of the contributory causes of the great hunger. It was my predecessor as president of Ireland, Mary Robinson, who invoked these ghosts of the silent and silenced victims of the great famine to draw attention not only to our own history (coughs) and to our diaspora, but to those who in our contemporary world continue to suffer famine. On May the 26th, 1840, she was speaking in Canada, and she must have been aware that how on May the 26th, 1847, 30 vessels with 10,000 immigrants were waiting at Grossi. Five days later, on May the 31st, 40 vessels are waiting in a line that extended two miles down the St. Lawrence River. And thus, in 1994, President Robinson, visiting Grossi, 30 miles from Quebec City, could, know, could visit where thousands of Irish immigrants died in quarantine, awaiting entry into British North America. But importantly, she went on to speak of famines in the contemporary world and our responsibility to stop them and the importance of us drawing from our own experience. For is it not the case that if the British state of the 19th century had the capacity to prevent the great hunger and didn't, how much more do we with our science and technology and vastly greater resources not have the capacity to combat hunger today? Marukhtar Nehren is President of Ireland. I often ask myself when I read of contemporary refugee and migratory movements, can we possibly envisage, or does anyone read, of what it might have been like for those Irish fleeing from the famine in the Christmas of 1846 into the new year of 1847? when in nine days between the 18th of January 1847 and the 26th day of that month, 173,000 Irish presented themselves for poor law relief in Liverpool. Half would aspire to get to the United States, which was a voyage of four weeks, and in the meantime, in those three or four days, they were available as prey, as migrants are today, for all those who exploit the migrant, including those who would exploit them in their own language. How much I often ask myself of our ethic, could our ethical memory teach and inspire us if we allowed such values to surface? Dear friends, my faculty skirt can click a car, lesson made the wrong as a vicious honor on Oscar Shot Yano. I am so pleased that the state, through the Art Department of Culture, Heritage and the Gate, is firmly supporting this exhibition and the accompanying programme of events. 
and I understand that Professor Keneally and her colleagues have already met with members of the inspectors of the Department of Education and Science for the purpose of engaging with schools and students throughout the country. And what a fine resource this exhibition will be. It is also so important practically and symbolically that the exhibition will move from this place, the seat of the administration of Ireland for centuries, where in 1849 they arranged to spend £5,000 on a dinner for Queen Victoria, that it will move to the West Cork Arts Centre in Skibbereen from July to October, and from there on to the Glassworks in Derry from January to March next year. Skibbereen and its surrounding townlands, as some of the art in this exhibition details, suffered terribly during the Great Hunger. The Abbey Cemetery still stands today with the famine dead buried beneath it, as a reminder of Bliant and Rochil, the years of the bad life. How inadequate that phrase sounds, really. I so want to welcome all of the new empirically-based scholarship, and I do want to refer to the great achievement that it is, the publication from University College Cork of the Great Atlas of the Irish Famine. It is in that publication that Professor Willie Smith tells us in his contribution about, about how Skibbereen and Skull got the title of Two Famine Slain Sisters of the South. In Skibbereen of a population of 43,266 in the spring of 1847, 22,241 died, 997 immigrated, 535 to the United States, 262 to England. And we should also recall that the famine affected all sections of the rural poor across this island, irrespective of creed. And we should also be aware of the effects of the famine in Scotland. The Quakers, for example, compared the town of Newton Arts and County Town with Skibreen. So numerous were their dead in that place. So it is so appropriate that this exhibition will travel and be experienced across Ireland. It will also enable citizens across the country to access the work of modern masters in the visual arts and of sculptures such as that of Rowan Gillespie and John Behan and visual artists who have captured the effects of the famine directly, such as Daniel MacDonald, whose work has been recovered and presented to us thanks to the efforts of Professor O'Sullivan. May I I just think we are so lucky that we have the opportunity of viewing this landmark exhibition in Ireland. So many will benefit from the work. A University. It's got a